0: It seems as though a lot of you have absolutely nothing to do tonight. And that's why you're here. Ron, I can understand you. You're retired. What do you got to do? You know? And, uh, yeah, and uh, not, some of you, I think, are just here to, you know, uh, as humans, to stay out of the way of zombies is uh, probably part of what's going on there. Um, well, you know, I don't. I don't know about this being the most profound thing that a, a person could do. You know, and I'm not even sure if this would be the lecture I'd give if I knew it was really going to be the last lecture <laughs> I gave. Although I, when they asked me to do this, I, th- I said, "Do you know something I don't know?" You know. I, uh, so, but I think this is uh, this is something that's important. You know, and I think it's uh, it's probably important to many of you, and that is uh, how to get a good night's sleep. You know, uh, and I can. I can remember when I was growing up, and this happened a lot, you know, when I was growing up uh, in the morning, I would wake up, I'd get out of bed, you know, and so forth, and my, my mother would say to me, Terry, how did you sleep last night? Your mother ever asked you that question? How'd you sleep last night? You know? And I, I'd say something like, well, I made a couple of mistakes, you know? <laughs> I'm going to try and get it right tonight, Mom, honest, you know? And that was one thing I loved about my parents, you know, they was, they, they never... They never got on you for sleeping too much. They were always. My parents would always say something like, "You must have been tired. You must have been really tired. You needed your sleep." And I always thought, "Bless their hearts." That's really, really true. <laughs> um, now, I- the strange thing is, is that sleep is not, you know, it hasn't always been what you think it is. You know, in a certain sense. You know, one of the things is this. You know, when uh, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, he invented the light bulb back in like 1879. Did you, get this. Did you know this, that before the invention of the light bulb, you know what the average number of hours of sleep of an American was? The average number of hours before the invention of the light bulb? Twenty-five. <laughs> <laughs> I got some disease there. Okay. No, actually, ten hours a night was the average. Ten hours. When was the last time you had ten hours of sleep? Ten hours is I'd be like going to bed at what at like eight o'clock in the, at night and getting up at six, or going to bed at eleven and getting up at nine. When was the last time you went to bed at eleven? Okay, yeah. Can you can you imagine that? Ten hours of sleep a night. You know, in the early two uh, thousands, for the in a in a national survey of college students was the first time that uh, college students noted that, and by the way, it was 10% of college students noted that among the things that they did for le- in their leisure time was to sleep. 10% of students reported that they slept. When they said, what do you do with your leisure time? They said, sleep. <laughs> There's some good timers, huh? Hey, we got some night off tonight, what do you wanna do? Let's, hey, let's sleep, you know? Very very exciting. Well, um, you know this is, this is an important time. It's important to you. It's oftentimes, you know, college students uh, they say one of the characteristics of them is they say they're tired. How many people would say, Yeah, that's me. I'm tired. I'm a tired person. Yeah. Would you like to get more sleep? Would you like to get a better night's sleep? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Get 10 hours. Get a good night's sleep. Um, hey, by the way, in the end, you know. A full third of your life, at least, will be taken up by sleeping. And I think that's what prompted a, uh, a recent sleep expert, and by the way, this is not a made-up quote, this is a real quote of a recent sleep expert to say this. Sleep, along with its counterpart being awake, accounts for much of the time spent by modern man during his life, and therefore merits serious attention couple of rocket scientists, those, uh, those sleep experts, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right. Well, you know, if we don't get the good night's sleep and we want to know more about how to get a good night's sleep and so forth, we've got to ask ourselves this question here. Why we don't get a good night's sleep? I think one of the big reasons is snoring. That has to be. At least that's one for my wife. My wife's sitting there. The lovely Natalie's sitting right over there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a, how many of you know that you're a bad snorer? Couple of you, only a couple, only a couple of you are willing to admit it, okay. Um, I am really, I'm a big time bad snorer. I'm a legendary snorer. My wife oftentimes has to sleep with her head at the other side of the bed, end of the bed, you know, to try to get sleep, because I snore so much. And so, you know, sometimes she'll go down and do sleep in another room after a while, just can't, you know, even there you can probably hear me snore. Still, I, I had a friend who uh, recorded my snoring for me one night just to let me hear because people would say, oh you can't believe it, and he'd be like, yeah whatever you know, and then uh, I recorded it, it was like, it, and then I do that thing. Apparently, it's like a sleep apnea kind of a problem almost, you know, where I do that thing where I take that. B- and you know, and if you're, and if you're the person like my wife who's into the, you know, they're getting that, just starting to get into being able to sleep because of the rhythm of your snoring. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, you hear that, <laughs> you know, wakes her up just to see if I'm dead yet. You know, you know what I That's a bad one. That is a that is a tough one. And I, I, I'll tell you what. I think a lot of people don't get a good night's sleep. Not only, by the way, I I know I've snored so loud I've woken myself up. That's true. You can snore so loud, you can wake yourself up. And you, just that one little second, you can hear the snore when you wake. <laughs> you know, it's really very, very weird. That's one reason. Here's another reason. Talking in your sleep. How many talkers we got out there? people? Whoa! Chatty, Kathy, all right. Um, yeah, talking in your sleep. That is another reason why people don't get a good night's sleep. Talking in their sleep. Wow, that's a surprise. That's a lot of people who talk in their sleep here you know and I, by the way have you since you know you go to college and you don't know your roommate talks in her sleep how many people have a roommate that talks in her sleep <laughs> this is kind of funny actually you know the problem is is that when you're first with that roommate you don't know that they talk in their sleep and so you think they're actually talking and you're trying to carry on a conversation with you, you know so they're like I don't, I don't think I can go later tonight you're like what you're awake, you know what? Uh, no, I can't make it. Can't. You can't, no, worry. can't make what? I ain't got no carrots. No, I. <laughs> then all of a sudden you realize, then you feel like an idiot. You're like, oh man, I'm talking to a guy in sleep. That's stupid, you know? Yeah. Talking in your sleep, that's a problem. Sleepwalking is a problem. Uh, how many? That's usually not big. How- got a couple of sleepwalkers. Have you done it here at school? Sleepwalking here? Do you get out of the room? Ever? No. Usually you get to the door and that's about it. Any, you, any, who else else? You, you did? Do you ever get out of the room and out of the mat? Do you ever get out onto Route 60 or anything like that? Or? <laughs> that's a long walk. <laughs> right. You'd be awake by then. Yeah, but that's a, that's a problem. I did, In my earlier days, I did a little sleepwalking, you know, and I can remember one time finding myself at the basement door, you know, like I was going down to the basement. My mother was like, oh, go to bed, you know. Uh, but that's a problem. Here's one you don't hear as often. It's called hypnic jerk syndrome. Now, this is an actual sleeping disorder, uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but hypnic uh, jerk syndrome is this. It's when you have the, uh, the muscles, your, the, your muscles will fire sort of involuntarily, you know, and all of a sudden you get that little, that little jerk. You ever have that when you're sleeping? Yeah, every once in a while you get that little, you know, you're you get a leg shake, you know, and so forth, or something like that. Well, there are some people who suffer from hypnic jerk syndrome, and sometimes the jerks can be violent, you know, which is my, you know, if I had them, it would be a problem. My wife's sleeping down the bottom of the bed, kick her in the face, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> That's not good for her. But um, some people have it so violent, they, they will have it tw- 20 times a minute They'll suffer from the hypnic jerk 20 times a minute. Seriously, that's like having a vibrating bed, you know what I mean? You don't even need to put the quarters in, just <laughs> sit them in on the other side. Oh, that's, yeah, that's good, that's good. That's, yeah, that could be disrupting to your sleep, yeah, I'm sure. Here's another one, this is an actual one, too. It's called nocturnal eating disorder. Anybody ever heard of this one? Nocturnal, yeah, it's a real deal, it's a real deal. Apparently, this is what it's a combination of a kind of an eating disorder with sleepwalking. Is that true? And what you get up, you're asleep. You get up, you don't know. You go down to the to the kitchen, and you eat something. Okay, like for you know, like you're on a diet and you're gaining weight, and you can't figure out why. You know, and then in the morning sometimes you go down and like there's like an empty jar of mayonnaise. <laughs> Or you're you're brushing your teeth and you realize you got like barbecue stains on your pajamas, you know? You wonder what's going on. That's a very unusual thing. But you know, here's here's maybe one of the biggest ones. Dreams. And their counterpart, nightmares. Nightmares, night terrors, you know, nightmares. How many people can remember their dreams? You know, when you wake up in the morning, you can remember your dreams. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, to tell you the truth. Because, you know, usually when I remember, I don't, I'm, I'm not one of those ones that, I, most of the time, I can't remember a single thing. No, the, the reality is, from what we know physiologically, everybody dreams every night and dreams quite a bit. Once you reach that you know, level of sleep, that rapid eye movement begins, and then you begin a kind of internal, you know, and some people have different ideas about what dreaming is. You know, some people think it's a kind of like, um, recounting of your day's activities, you know, kind of a thing. It's sort of like uh, symbolically uh, going through your emails and deleting the things that, you know, don't mean anything to you anymore or something like that. You know, it's something where you go through some stuff that's going on in your head. And sometimes, like I said, I, I don't, most of the time I don't. You know, strangely, the ones that I do, the very rare ones that I do, and I can remember this particularly when I was in high school. I would have that dream. You ever had this dream? Had that dream that you got your report card, and you did really poorly. You got an F in something or a D in something, and I would wake up nervous, and I'd wake up thinking of what I was going expl- how I was going to explain it to my parents, and I'd be awake thinking of like, well, well how am I going to, well, maybe if I and then all of a sudden I'd be like, I didn't get a report card fantastic you know I got two weeks to figure that out you know it's great you know but you know I mean it, 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 and so I don't know if that's a bl- my my wife though my wife she can remember all of her dreams and she wake up in the morning tell you exactly what she's been dreaming you know, in, in detail and so forth. And sometimes, just to make her feel good, you know, she'll, I, you know, I'll lie to her and tell her I, I dream something. Oh, yeah, honey, I you fit into your homecoming dress. And, um, no, I mean, I, the lie is that I didn't have the dream, is what I meant. Was what I meant. Um, but, you know, I, I, do, I do something like that, you know. So, But you know what I, 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 I do do? And uh, it's this. I don't, I can do, there's a different kind of dreaming which I think, which I am able to do, which not everybody is actually able to do. And it's this it's called lucid dreaming. Is anybody here familiar with the lucid dreaming notion? This is what lucid dreaming is lucid dreaming is when you're dreaming and all of a sudden you realize that you're dreaming. And because you realize that you're dreaming, you say to yourself, this is just a dream. And I can do whatever I want. You don't know how many times Dean Smith has fallen down the steps of Old Main oh, right God. over here. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't mean that. I, I, no. But you know, seriously, you know, I, it's one of those dreams where you get to the window and people are chasing you and you think to yourself, I can never make it to that other building. Oh, yes, I can. And so you just run on, and you jump, you make it lucid dreaming lucid dreaming well sigmund freud said this about dreams he said a dream is the fulfillment of a wish the dream's a fulfillment of a wish what do you think about that the dream is the fulfillment of a wish it's the you know it's the it's the only reality of it in a certain sense that he's saying that you sometimes ever experience i i have a different way of looking matter of fact I've often wondered this. Haven't you ever wondered this? Why is it that God, in the history of his revelation with human beings, why is it that he has chosen so many times to communicate to people in dreams? Think about that for a second. Doesn't that seem like an unlikely time? If you're the God of the universe and you want to reveal something to somebody with some clarity, you've got something important to say, you wait right till they fall asleep. I mean, if that was the if that was truly the way to do it, I might be one of the greatest teachers in the history of human I think some of you know who I'm talking about out there, right? Yeah, I just wait till I lulled the class into a stupor And as soon as they were right there on the brink of oblivion right moving into REM state I'd say something important and they get it Yeah, what why why would God wait till somebody was asleep to tell them something important I mean seriously, don't you think this is wouldn't this be more like it throw a bucket of cold water. I'm hey, 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 now look at me. Look at me. Look at my eye I'm gonna tell you something. Listen to me. Don't let don't look over. Look at me You better listen and you better remember this right now That sounds like the way you do it if you were really interested in getting somebody to hear something, doesn't it? But not God he talks to people in their dreams why well maybe it's because this because dreams occur at a time when you're most open to what you might hope for most certain about what you can't see do you know who said that you know who said that quote dreams occur at a time when you're most open to what you might hope for most certain about what you can't see anybody who somebody said a guess Paul you mean the Apostle Paul <laughs> no he didn't say that somebody else you can you get a guess Walt Disney, Walt Disney? <laughs> Carl Young it's actually Terry Thomas boy genius he said that <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually my little per- it's my paraphrase of this passage in Hebrews 11, you know, where it says now faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain about what you don't see. You know, could it be that because faith is like that, one of the times that God chooses to communicate to people is when at a time when they're most open? to what they might hope for. Most certain about what they can't see quite yet. Because that's a little bit about what he's about. He's about getting, to people, getting people to that point where they're ready to believe. Well, you know, since we don't seem to get the kind of rest that we want, you got to ask yourself why is it that we don't experience rest? Uh, you know, I, I gave some of the things of why we don't experience sleep, but maybe some of the questions is more important, is deeper, is why we don't get the kind of deep rest that we're looking for. You know, Marva Dawn in her book the "Keeping the Sabbath Holy" was well, pretty tricky on that little holy thing. Um, you know, she she points out a couple of different things that she says are reasons why people don't experience um, don't experience rest. The first one, she says, is because of, uh, of work, okay? And you can understand this. You can understand why people don't experience rest because of the work that they have to do. You know, especially when I work in our day is so much focused on, you know, p- increasing productivity. You know, um, we wanna, we, we, we wanna, we're all accomplishment oriented. We, uh, you know, we, we have a, a, a desire Particularly, the way that organizations, whether they be nonprofit organizations or for-profit organizations, are organized, they tend to be structured by efficiency. Get more with less. You know, and so we're driven to be to be tired from that. You know, we, we're cheated out of rest for that. You know, and, and the reality is this: no matter what job you have, whether it's the job of being a student or the job of being a professor or the job of being A parent or the job of being whoever you are whatever you do. Here's the Here's the reality of it There's always more to do and Every day there's always things that are left undone Don't you always feel that way? There's always could be more. There's always more that you could do and even when you're done. There's always something left undone and so we're cheated out of rest by the very work you know, that we, we have. By the way, I was, I've talked with my Bible 300 class recently. We we're talking about relationships right now in Bible 300. And I was pointing out that people are so, so driven by their work, and they, get s- they have so little time outside their work that their relationships suffer unbelievably you know, poorly. This is why we have the rise of people trying to make relationships via you know, the computer, for instance. e e, e- Harmony sites, and so and I'm not trying to be crit- critical of eHarmony if you're somebody Yes, I am. Why do I lie? Yeah, I'm trying to be critical. Okay. Yeah, here's the deal um, and just a little critical of it. I was listening to an NPR uh, Story the other day But this was maybe uh, I don't know three or four months ago about folks in New York City who their work was so consuming They were so overwhelmed with it, that they had a new kind of speed dating that had developed Okay I mentioned this in our Bible 300 class the other day. It was the speed dating where you filled out a survey, like an eHarmony-type survey ahead of time, and then what happened is they programmed them, and they programmed them into little pins, lapel pins with your name on them that people wore, and at the top of the lapel pin, there were 10 little lights. And what happened was, was that when you went to a party, instead of doing the typical speed dating thing where you would sit down at a table and talk back and forth with a real person for 10 or 15 minutes and maybe have six or seven of those dates over the course of an hour or two and then decide if you wanted to go out with somebody, in order to speed up the process, here's what happened now. You would have these these data put into your name tag and then you would walk around at the party and when you got close to someone who shared... The, the lights went on on their thing and yours saying how many of the 10 categories you shared with that person so that you could know who you're most compatible with. So you just walked around you know, and you could ignore people that were two and three and four. And as you got closer to somebody, you, you, didn't, you didn't even have to talk to them, just like You know? and Seriously, that's lacking. When you don't have the time to, to build a relationship that you want, to talk to somebody, to date, your work is robbing you of rest in your life. Well, that's just, that's just one way in which it happens. You know, our life is also filled with all sorts of anxieties and worries and tensions and so forth. You know, the pace of life. You know, we talked about that, about the, you know, People used to get 10 hours of sleep. Nobody gets 10 hours of sleep anymore. The pace of life will not allow it. And you just gotta go, 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 go. Some of you, I I know some of you who have little day timers and you got time management. You know, matter of fact, when you came as a freshman, we told you that was essential for you to be a productive student and to be efficient and so forth. And here's what you did, you filled it up. And that's what you do now, too. You run from one thing to the next. You know, and, it, and after a while, it gets a little stressful. You look at your schedule to see if you can schedule in some time for your friend. That doesn't even sound right, that you should schedule in a little time for a friend. The pace of life is unbelievable. Not only is the pace of life unbelievable, but the problems of life increase as well. I mean, let's face it, you can't live life free of problems, and so your problems begin to cheat you out of being able to rest in life. And if that's not bad enough, here's the really problem. The problems oftentimes are tied to people. that's the peskiest part of it all. The messiest part of it all is people. You know, I'll tell you this right now. Being a college professor would be a fantastic job if there weren't any students. (laughs) If you did not have to deal with students on a regular basis, fantastic job. Terrific job. But that's the point, isn't it? As soon as you get connected to some other person, they got the whole mess of their life. Or you got the whole mess of your life that somehow gets entangled in theirs. And it's a stress kid. Let me just ask you this. Have you ever laid in bed at night? You wanted to rest. You wanted to go to sleep. But the pace of the day, the problems of the day, the people and the relationships that you were juggling, could barely allow you to close your eyes. And even when you did, you realized your heart was still pounding fast. Your, your chest felt tight, hands a little sweaty. You couldn't put your mind to ease because of the things that were going on. We're cheated out of rest because of that. Now, I got to tell you this I, you know, I once worked with a guy, he, was, he worked kind of for me you know, when I worked at another college, and uh, this guy had a particular physical ailment, okay? He had a thing called an enlarged epiglottis, you know, that's that little thing in the back of your throat that closes off your, you know, your windpipe to food and so forth that comes down. Well, his was enlarged, and so as a result, because it was enlarged, sometimes it would stick in his windpipe, and so he just occasionally would have trouble breathing, you know? And it wasn't hard. Whatever would happen, he would just go he just have to pop it a little bit and get it back. Well, here's the thing, though. Whenever you made him nervous, whenever he was under stress, his windpipe constricted. And so as a result, the epiglottis stuck more easily to his, it closed up that hole. And so when you were talking with him, you knew you were making him, you were stressing him out. (laughs) Because as you were talking, he'd be going, (laughs) and you didn't have to feel, but you felt like you were choking him, you know what I mean? You're trying to talk to them. Now, look, I think you need to do... No, you can do better. That's, that's the stress. Here's the point. You just don't choke a lot while it happens. You may have all the other kind of things. The eating stuff and the sleeplessness and the restlessness and the irritability. Stress, anxiety. Here's another one. A little thing we like to call, this is what Percy Walker calls it, the everydayness of life. What Peter Senge, the guy who wrote to the fifth fifth principle, it's about leadership, he says, he calls it getting caught in the flow of life. The flow of life, the everydayness of life, it's just that thing where it just seems to be the same thing over and over and over again the routine, the deadness of it, the meaninglessness, seemingly, of just being in that pattern. You know, it's, you're in the rut. And occasionally you get a chance to sort of break out and escape from the rut. You get spring break, you get fall break, you get Christmas break, you get Easter break. But guess what? As soon as you come back, it's the rut. By the way, do you ever, maybe you're not old enough to have done this yet, but have you ever gone on vacation and when you came back from vacation, needed a vacation from your vacation? Instead of it enlivening in, in you, giving you rest, the very thing that was meant to be, recreational. It just simply wore you out every more, even more. And what happened was the deadening sense of being caught in the flow of it. The meaninglessness of that everyday experience seems all the more heavy. Or here's another thing that keeps us from experiencing the rest trying to be like God. Trying to be like God. Now, I know when I say that, a lot of people, you know, most of you out there, because you think of yourselves as good people, you know, you're, you're like, I, you know, I don't try to be like God. I'm that stupid. <laughs> you know what I to. Be trying to be. Well, I like to call it well-intentioned megalomania okay it's what it is it's it's not you know it's not uh, evil i need to rule the universe you know uh, at least not outright it's not like that it's it's well-intentioned megalomania it goes like this it goes like this i need to be a person who has the answers to things Want to be able to speak authoritatively in situations that I come up with. By the way, this is one of the great temptations of being a college professor. Because people already think you're an expert at something. Whether you are or you aren't. They already think you're an expert at something, and here's the deal: you begin to act like you are. And so you begin to think like you can talk about, or that when you talk, people should listen to you. Like you got really something to say. You can speak at, you know, I was at a, I was at a party once. I met a guy, and I asked him what he did. He said he worked at Goodyear Tire over in Akron. You know, said, what do you do? He says, "I'm a polymer chemist." I had no idea. I said, "What? Is, what is that?" He says, "Oh, I, you know, I work with the polymer chemists work with um, complex car- carbon molecules and so forth." I was like, "Oh, okay." About eight months later, I was someplace else and. Somebody mentioned that they were a polymer chemist, and immediately I said, "Oh, you work with complex carbon molecules." And the guy looked at me and said, "Yes, I do." And I thought to myself, "What possessed you to say that?" I mean, I I, basically here's the thing: I wanted to look like I knew something that I could basically in that one sentence, I said every single thing I knew about (laughs) polymer chemistry. But that wasn't the point. I wanted to make it look like I was. You should listen to what I say, like I know something. Aren't we like that sometimes? Don't you try to be like God in the sense that you'd like to talk authoritatively and you like to have the answers and you talk like you got the answers, or at least you act like you got all the answers to all the things that are important. Or another way we do it is this, is this way: we. We try to provide security for ourselves and sometimes for other people that in reality we really can't provide. That's what God does. God provides security. But we act as though we can. We're going to make somebody else feel safe. Or, or, or here's, maybe this is the bigger way to see it. We've got this notion that, that, that we can make the future We can make a certain future. That's God we're talking about who does that kind of stuff. And yet we act like we're the ones who can do that. Let me tell you this. When you decide that you're going to be the one who makes the future, when you decide that you're going to be the one who's going to provide security, when you decide you're going to be the one that is going to speak authoritatively to all issues, that will tire you out. Trying to be like God will steal your rest from you, and then maybe this last one here is another one: trying to be worthy of love. Now I think when we try to be worthy of love, what we do is we, we try to we try to act this is a great one for Christian colleges, I think we try to act good enough to be lovable. We think what it, we think oftentimes, even what it means to be a Christian to you know to fulfill who we think we are is about working harder just being more diligent more disciplined more hard working striving and striving and striving to please somebody god our parents some special person we need to be perceived as lovable and we're going to earn that love We're going to make sure that we earn that love. Or maybe it's it's not to somebody else. Maybe it's to ourselves. We're going to earn our own self-esteem. Now, isn't that... Think about that for a second. Think about the the ridiculousness, the oxymoron that that sentence actually is. To earn your own self-esteem. You're going to do something that gives you a reason to feel good about yourself. By the way, most of the time, you'll never be satisfied with whatever it is that you, matter of fact, I'm guessing that none of the time, no matter what it is you eventually accomplish, will you personally be satisfied unless somebody else tells you that it was worth something. And yet we continue to try to do that. And then sometimes, I think it's this too, sometimes we want to try to be worthy of love because what we do is we try to make up for the failures that we've had in the past. We try to work harder at being that better person that'll somehow allow us to overcome what we had in the past. Well, okay, hey, if that's not enough reasons to recognize, I mean, if you think you had trouble sleeping, just think how much harder it is to get true rest. So the question is, how can we experience rest, right? Well, here's one quick answer. Stop doing all those other things. I mean, seriously, you don't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to come up with one of the quick answers. You know, uh, stop doing that kind of stuff. You know, t- stop trying to be like God. T- stop trying to earn love. Now, maybe you can't. Maybe it's easy to say, well, stop working. Maybe you've already done that in one way. I'm not saying which way it is, but it hasn't, maybe it hasn't worked out. But, you know, what else can you do? Well, here's what you can do you can discover what true rest looks like and where it could find it being a bible professor you know i'm compelled to read this bible passage at least one during a lecture so i will read this one here this is from the book of matthew it says at this time jesus said i praise you father lord of heaven and earth because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and you've revealed them to little children yes father for this was your good pleasure All things have been committed to me by the Father. No one uh, knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then Jesus says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Apparently one of the answers, you know, or perhaps the central answer to how it is that we experience rest is we find the one who has it, the one who promises to give it to us, and we go to him to attempt to experience that. Now, we might say, in what way? Well, I think in a way in which we learn how to be embraced by true rest. Here might be the irony of it all. It's not so much that you go out and try to figure out how to get rest as it is that you figure out where rest is, and then when you go there, rest embraces you. Sounds a little weird, doesn't it? It almost sounds as if you'd have to give up trying and find it through some other way. But I think that's what it's about. I think that rest in life is about rest finding you and embracing you. Now, you can go to where it is. You can, you, can say, you can see that it's being, it says, come to me, those who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. You can know where to go to get it. You can go to Jesus. But it's not by going to him that you, in some effort that you get, something you do, but instead, it's being embraced by him. And you notice it says this. If you look at this passage a little clearer, it says, I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you've revealed them to little children. Apparently, there's something about rest. There's something about being embraced in rest that is so simple that little children Know what it's about? Well, that's probably because Jesus says this about the centrality of that sort of childlikeness in the Book of Mark. It also appears in a couple other places. He says this: People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but his disciples rebuked them. And Jesus saw, uh, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, "Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these." Now look at this in verse 15. I tell you the truth. By the way, I did a little study of all the places in the Bible where Jesus says, I tell you the truth. And immediately after, every single one of them, he tells the truth. (laughs) I tell you the truth. Anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, and he puts his ha- put his hands on them, and he blessed them. You know, it's pretty clear that this rest comes from having been embraced by Jesus. You need to go to him and be embraced, and you need to go to him, apparently, as a child. Because the kingdom of God, participation in this, this whole notion of rest, the fulfillment of what life's about, is it's experienced by responding like a child. That's clear. There's no question about that. You, you see what it says. You can't, act, you can't inherit the kingdom of God unless you receive it like a child. That's clear. What's not clear is what he meant. <laughs> How like a child? How? that's not that clear well you know my buddy Don Opitz and I we sat around and we talked one night about ways in which it might you know what, what it might mean when Jesus said that to embrace like and how that might usher you into rest you know uh, we, we talked about this these are certainly ways in which children act they're, they give innocent trust and easy love and they're willing to risk wouldn't you agree that kids are like that I mean innocent trust I can remember when my kids were young, you know, and I'd be gone for a day or so, or, you know, even gone during the day, and I'd come home, and, you know, we lived in a little house that had, a, had a, a concrete, five or six concrete steps down to the sidewalk, you know, from the front door, and I can remember that when I would come home, my kids would see me coming home, and they would run out the door, and as I was coming up the steps, they would just run off the top step. Ah! And I was supposed to catch them. You know, whatever I had in my hand, I, you, know, you had to drop that, you know, and catch that kid. And here's the thing, i got two kids. And so you better put that one down fast, because the other one is like in the air already, you know? Yeah. And very rarely does a parent ever do like this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing with you. you know. No. Here's the question. What would it take for you to dive up the concrete stairs from the top? The innocent trust that the person whose arms you were driving into was not only willing, but capable of catching you, embracing you, holding you up. Saving you from all the things that could happen by your own choices. On the other hand, you know, kids, kids have another kind of build. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. You know, he was looking for the person that could give that innocent trust. But then again, maybe he was looking for people who could give what we like to call easy love. You know, easy love, kids are like this especially. They're, you know, you ever notice the little kids can go like to the park and play, and they meet a little, they meet a kid, they've never met the kid before in their life. And, you know, instantly that kid becomes their best friend. You know, they don't know, and they don't, and the point is they know nothing about that kid in the sense of they don't use the typical screening categories that we might use. They don't know anything about the kid's background, you know, where they live, what kind of socioeconomic, you know, background they come from, you know, what their, what their family's like, you know, race doesn't seem to be an issue to them, you know, at that point. You know, and after a while, they're, they're walking around holding hands. Two little kids have never met each other before. You know, they walk over, you know, I remember our kids coming up to the playground, to I hey, can, uh, what's your name? <laughs> Bill, can Billy come home with us? <laughs> His parents are, you know, for dinner. I mean, kids have the ability to give a kind of easy look. I, I've told a story before. It's one of my favorites. I, I got a friend who lives down in Waynesburg. He's the vice president of Waynesburg University. And his wife, his wife's a doctor, and her mother was a famous veterinarian in Greene County. <laughs> okay? And so it, she's not a veterinarian, but her mother was. And in spite of the fact that she's not a veterinarian, for some reason, people still bring sick animals to her house. And they got a barn and everything. And people just, they find them, and they just bring them and leave them at their house. So, you know, you get, when you go to her house, you know, they got like, they got like horses with, you know, one eye, you know, they, they, you know, they got cows with like three legs, you know, and so, you know what they call that cow with the three legs? Eileen. But, um, they got, you know, they got all kind of weird animals and so forth at their house. And one time we were, we were down there visiting them and, uh, you know, we drive up, and before we could get out of the car, they get two little boys, and the boys came out. <laughs> little boys, they're in college now. The little boys came up to us and said, "You know, Terry, 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 you got to come in the house. We we found some baby turkeys today. You know. Now I don't know if you ever seen a baby turkey. <laughs> this is one of the ugliest animals you have ever encountered." I mean, they are really weird-looking. Their body structure is strange. And they got it's like a little fur and parts and a little feather hanging out here, weird stuff off their neck. And they got kind of crazy eyes, you know, and everything. They're, they're disgusting-looking animals, you know, and so forth. And so they're like, come on, you got to see the baby turkey. Apparently, what had happened was the mother turkey, we're not quite sure. She seemed depressed. Might have been suicide. We don't know. but. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but anyway, they did, the mother was dead, and there were baby, and there were like five little baby turkeys. And so they had them in the back, in the corner, you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, one of the stationary tubs, you know, back there. They had papers on the bottom and like a heat you know, lamp, a sun lamp on them to keep them warm and everything. And I remember walking in the house, and I was like, okay, where are the babies? Oh, they're back there, aren't they? And you could smell them from the front door, you know, it was unbelievable. You know, and there's nothing, if they weren't ugly enough already, after about three days of little baby turkeys pooping in the, uh, in the, in the little stationary tug and then rolling around in it and then having it baked on by a lamp, you know, and so you get back there, oh, oh. And by the time I get back there, both of these kids have one of these little poop-encrusted baby turkeys in their heads are going like this, oh, baby turkeys. And I'm going like. <laughs> but that's the way kids are, huh? Hey, you know, maybe Jesus was saying this. If you want to experience rest, you know, not only do you have to be able to have a kind of innocent trust, but maybe you've got you to be willing to give up your former categories about what it means to live and love a completely different way, open-ended, easy love. Or, or I'll tell you what. Maybe he meant this, because kids can do this. They are willing to risk. They are willing to risk. My, uh, this is my my brother and sister over here, right? And uh, yeah. No, I, they don't deserve that. <laughs> Some of the things they've done to me. <laughs> but um, you know, they they just. Uh, I don't know if you did, but I know my sister just saw one of the folks used to live in our neighborhood back in Pittsburgh and grew up. And you uh, know, we were growing up. We used to have a we used to have a game we played. We had a game called um, Release. You ever play Release? You know, basically, is you divide all the kids up in the neighborhood into two groups, and one group chases the other one. And if you catch them, you bring them back to the jail, which was Bobby Wright and Bob's back porch was the jail. You know, and uh, you know, and about a, if the street lights came on, whoever had the most on their t- either caught or you know free or whatever, that was the winner. You know, and um, so if some of your friends got caught, you know, and they were in the jail, you were like a hero. If you could get in and hit the jail, you say release, and then they all get to run, you know, that'd be fantastic, you know? So, but here's the deal. If you wanted to do that, you had to have a, an escape route because you know everybody would be after you for that you know, heroic adventure, you know? So I had, I had the foolproof escape route. This is what I would do. I would go in, I'd say release, and I'd jump over this little wall, run across the alley, and then I'd run through the back of this yard, and I know this isn't nice, but we used to call this lady we used to say it was Old Lady Ackerman's backyard. Okay, we called her Old Lady Ackerman because she was old. All right, she was like 40 or something like that. Okay, <laughs> and her name was Ackerman. So anyway, so um, we'd run through her backyard, and at the other end of her yard, there was like a cyclone fence that had a rose bush on it. And it was one of those rose bushes that had the big thorns, like that big on it, you know, shark teeth type things. And you would run across there, and you would dive over the fence and over the rose bush, hoping that nobody would have the guts to follow you into the Polinsky's backyard. And then would, and from there, you would run up to the back of the Polinsky's backyard, where they had, a, they had like a chicken wire mesh fence that was in the back. It was about eight feet tall, that Mr. Polinsky would come out occasionally, and he would paint with typhoid. And... Um, <laughs> anyway, and you would, go, and he would uh, climb up to the top. <laughs> That's not really true, Keith. I, didn't, I made that part up. But uh, you would climb to the top, and then when you get to the top, you would jump on these garage roofs. There were flat garage roofs that were there. And, of course, these were real thin roofs. They weren't made to be walked on. So at any moment, you could be crashing down into a garage. But you would run across the garage roofs, and then at the end of the garage roof, you would jump off. I was just running, jump off the top of the garage roof down into Pat Skelly's backyard. It was like a 10-foot drop from the top of the garage down into the, I can't, I'll tell you what, I don't know how many times I did it. The reality is, I should be this tall, okay? (laughs) I should have no knees or legs or anything like that, you know, I mean, and several years ago, you know, when I was like 40, I went back to my old neighborhood, and I was walking around, and looked over at those garages, and I thought to myself, what would it take today to get me to jump off that garage roof into Pat Skelly's back and I couldn't think of a thing sorry (laughs) honey I couldn't think of a thing (laughs) but I was willing to do that when I was a kid I was willing to do that take that risk to play a game you know when Jesus said look you want to experience rest you want to come to me you want to know what it's like to be a child to receive the kingdom like a child you want to know what it's like to feel in that embrace maybe he was saying innocent trust easy love willing to risk i hear the bells chiming i should be done but i'm not i got just a little more i don't know what he meant i, I i'm not certain it was any of these But i got a guess as to what it might be. i got a better guess than even this. And here's the better guess, what the better guess is based on. Sometimes when you're interpreting the Bible, those of you who have taken Bible 200, I believe you know this, you know, know that the Gospels, when they were written, sometimes the Gospel writers reordered the things, the, the sayings of Jesus and the stories about Jesus for their own purposes in a certain sense to emphasize something. And when you look in chapter 18 of the book of Luke, that same story that we read out of of Mark actually appears in the book of Luke. And it appears in a section in between two other stories. And I think the fact that these three stories are together gives you an idea of what this story is about, what he means like a child, a little more than my kind of guesses, even though these sound like good answers. And the two stories that it's in the middle of The one is the story of the Pharisee and the publican. You remember this one here? The parable of the Pharisee and the publican about the Pharisee who goes to the temple to pray, and he, oh, God, thank goodness, I'm not like these terrible evildoers, like a publican over there, you know, and so forth. But, you know, I do all the right religious things. I try so hard. I strive with all I've got to be up to your standards. And it says the publican said this. He couldn't even bring himself to raise his head. To heaven and he said have mercy on me a sinner and Jesus says well that day it was the publicans whose prayer was heard not the Pharisee not the religious person and then the other story is the story of the rich young ruler it's the story of the guy who seemed to have it all together seemed to be at peace with everything but apparently there was something he just couldn't get rest over and so he comes to Jesus to ask him what does he have to do What's that one more thing that he has to do to be able to be released from the stress and from the striving and from the anxiety? and Give me one more work to do. And Jesus says to him, well, sell everything you have. It's not about what you got. It's not about who. You, it's, something, it's something else here. Surrender everything to me says the guy goes away sorrowful because he has great wealth. This is my best guess as to what it means to, to receive rest like a child. It means to admit your need, to ask for mercy, and to surrender all. How do you get a good night's sleep? You go to the one, you go to the one who promises rest. And when you go to the one who promises rest, you allow him to embrace you. Here, here's what he says. He says, I'll embrace you when you admit your need and you ask for mercy. And then you surrender all that you have. That's what children do. i tell you this last story and then I'm done. You know, when I was in college, um, I, in the summers I worked up at a camp in Ligonier, and uh, we, one of the jobs I had one summer was uh, I, I did the, uh, the like, adventure education kind of thing, you know, outdoor you know, kind of stuff. And um, at the, you know, towards the end of the week of every week when we have kids, we'd have young kids there, you know, elementary school kids most of the time, middle school kids some of the time. Uh, but you know, uh, towards the end of the week, I'd tell these kids, you know, we're gonna go on a hike this week. We used to go on a hike every, every week to this place called The Beautiful Pines. We called it the Beautiful Pines because there were, there were pine trees there, and they were beautiful. you know. And it was a ways away. It was probably, I don't know, maybe 11 miles from where the camp was. And I would say to these kids, you know, I'd say, now this is the longest hike you're ever, you know, longest walk you're ever going to go beyond. And so you've got to be ready for it. And I said, here's the, all you need to do. All you need to do is to take your sleeping bag and put it down long ways, roll it up long ways, tie it together, use this kind of a sash, carry it, That's all you need to take. I am going to carry everything else we need. You don't have to take anything else. Would they listen to me? No. They fill their sleeping bag up with extra clothes and shoes and microwaves and you know I mean all kind of stuff, you know. And then I'd tell them. I'd say to them, look. I said, you know, uh, this is a long hike. This is like a hike. Isn't a walk. It's a hike. I said, you got to wear some sturdy shoes. You can't wear sandals or something like that. There were always the little girls. who were like, I'm going to wear my jellies. You remember those shoes that were called jellies, you know? And they were like made of like reconstituted gum or something like that. I, <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm going to wear my jellies. I'd say, no, you can't wear your jellies. That's not the kind of shoes you get. But would they listen to me? No. And so we would get out there on that hike. And we would be hiking. You know, we'd be going, we'd be going, you know. We get out there, I don't know, maybe seven, eight miles, you know, kids would be dragging. you know, can barely make it. I mean, I can't, I can't walk anymore, I can't, I can't, go any further, this is too long. I got blisters from my jellies, I guess. I, mean, I, I do what every good camp counselor should do. I lied to him, you know, I... I'd say, well, it's just over the hill. We can make it just over that hill. And they'd be like, all right, I can make it over the hill. You know, So we'd get over that hill, and they'd be like, where is it? I'd say, oh, you thought I meant this hill. Well, I, see, I'm taller than you. I can see the hill I was pointing at. It was that one over. Oh, I can't make it any farther. I can't make it. My sleeping bag's just too heavy. A microwave would drag it on the ground. There'd always be one little girl, you know, she had that brown, curly hair, the big brown eyes, you know. She'd look at me, <laughs> I can't carry my sleeping bag any further. And I'd look at her, and I'd say, do you want me to carry your sleeping bag? And she'd say, please. She wasn't just willing to admit her need. She was willing to ask for mercy. And when I'd say, give me your sleeping bag, she'd surrender everything she had. And I'd take that sleeping bag and I'd put it on. Now, once you carry one kid's sleeping bag, <laughs> within a half mile, you look like the freaking Michelin man out there, you know what I mean? You got like a dozen... Sleeping bags and you can barely move your legs, you know. Wouldn't matter. We get almost there. And the same little girl, big tears in her eyes, you know. My my blisters are too bad. And I'd say to her, Do you want me to carry you the rest of the way? And she'd say, Yes. So I'd pick her up and put her on top of my shoulders with all those sleeping bags. and We'd head out to work. Now, you can't carry every kid. <laughs> I, I pulled three or four of them by their hair a lot of times. <laughs> we'd get down to the beautiful pines. Kids would be so excited to be there. Rolling Rock Creek went through. It was freezing cold. Get their little blistered feet in there. They'd be so excited. you know. So, Well, here's the thing. I knew something they didn't know we'd walk back the next day. <laughs> so sometimes by the flickering firelight, I used to cut the blisters off their feet. and In order to toughen up the skin, I'd put some gasoline on them or something. <laughs> I often wonder what the people who lived around the, the beautiful pines thought. The sounds of young children screaming by the firelight. <laughs> Of Hansel and Gretel like, you know, kind of a thing. And on the way back, I'd say to the other counselors, don't let any of them stop near a telephone. Because I was always certain they'd call their parents and say, We're on the death march. <laughs> We'd get back to camp, and their parents would come in a day or two, and you know what the very first thing kids would say? They'd tell their parents how fantastic that experience was it used to amaze me <laughs> but inevitably that was the thing you know you know why i think it was because they experienced something that they really wanted a kind of rest from the everydayness a kind of peace in a certain sense by being willing to admit their need Ask for mercy and get it. And surrender everything that they are. Here's what rest looks like. It's a relationship that replaces our striving. It's a reorientation that gives us new direction. And it's a rhythm of renewal that avoids that everydayness. You've heard this statement by St. Augustine. I say this. Thanks for uh, coming out tonight. We'll talk to you some other time.